Stephanie Butnick, do you have a mazel tov? I do. I have a mazel tov to my grandparents, Cecile and Al Rothhouse. They got their first vaccine shot. <laughs> Whoa. Sorry, I'm going through puberty. Um, hold on. Look, you never know when it's going to happen. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by two co-hosts. One of them, you know him. He's a tablet editor at large. He's Liel Leibowitz. I love the resigned way in which he said it. Ah, two co-hosts. Ah, best I could do on a Monday morning. Same as ever. <laughs> Liel, how are you? I am doing very well, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you up so early as we tape at an unusually early hour this week. And tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Thanks for doing me second, because as you know, I was eating my breakfast when you introduced Leo. What are you having? Like a little Greek yogurt with some granola and some blueberries. I think it'd really be good for mouth noise. I think we've talked before about my feelings about Greek yogurt. It's a scam. Nobody really likes Greek yogurt. Good old American yogurt with fruit on the bottom. That's my jam. Except for the Greeks. Except the Greeks. <laughs> the Greeks needed an export. Their economy wasn't so strong. Don't talk about John Stamos like that. This is his <laughs> biggest gig right now. Is he plumping for Greek yogurt? Is he a pitch person? For Oikos. Oh, I didn't know. Not seen his sexy commercials? I have not. The algorithms do not pair me with John Stamos. I like that you consider TV commercials part of the algorithm too now. <laughs> right. Which, by the way, is crazy considering that Clara, 10-year-old Clara, is obsessed with Fuller House, which of course invokes Full House, which, if I'm not mistaken, Stamos was one of the two co-stars of, right? With Bob Saget. Wasn't it Saget and Stamos? Yeah, Uncle Jesse. And Dave Coulier. I'm sorry, two co-stars? What is this <laughs> anti-Canadian racism? No, Bob Saget was the star and there were two like male co-stars. I wasn't going to get into this, but I think people should know Fuller House, she's obsessed with, but she won't watch the original Full House. She thinks that somehow it'll ruin it for her. She knows the plot, the, the backstories, because they all come back on Fuller House. She won't watch it. It's weird because she doesn't even know about the Mary-Kate and Ashley character. That's right. Last week, we had a terrific live show at Beth Sholem Congregation in suburban Philadelphia. Had the honor of interviewing the Jew-Gentile team, team in life, as well as in being guests on our podcast, Jamie and Brian Stelter. Jamie is the traffic reporter for New York One, and she does so much more. And her husband, Brian, is the chief media correspondent for CNN and the host of Reliable Sources. Today, we're really pleased to bring you that conversation. But before we do that, there's a little uh, drama going on here on Unorthodox as one Liel Bencion Chaim Tzvi Dovber Leibowitz. Liel Bencion Penalty Kill Center Ice Leibowitz. <laughs> has been on a journey to uh, expose himself to hockey. <laughs> rather to have hockey exposed to him insofar as he hates the sport, but he told our listeners he would give it a try. Just to recap, if you're joining us for the first time on this show, he thinks it's stupid, but our listeners have said, come on, there actually have been a lot of Jews in hockey. It's actually a great sport. They've been writing to him, suggesting what his favorite team should be, giving him on-ramps galore to help him hop over the wall onto the rink. Liel, how has the journey been going? So, you know, a few weeks ago, memorably, I let it be known that I feel like hockey is a game that could have been played by drunk bears in the woods with sticks and stones. And I got a host of letters. And here's what won me over. What won me over is the absolute burning passion of our listeners to truly not just tell me off in a way like, hey, man, you're wrong or stupid, but, but really try to save my soul, <laughs> try to convert mm -hmm. me in a way that felt Felt, well, very religious to me. You know, I'm, I'm a religious person. Felt almost Lubavitcher in its passion and spirit. It felt like, excuse me, are you a hockey fan? Do, do you have five minutes to talk about Alex Ovechkin? And so I said, okay, any activity that arouses this level of passion is something that's worth considering. And if I consider something, as you know, being a maniac, I consider it with all my might. You go deep. 
I shelled the $99 for the NHL center ice, whatever it's called, app. You're not even going to expense it. That's how hardcore you are. No, no, no. I'm, I'm going all in and made the commitment to watch at the very least two and sometimes three hockey games a night. So this is a very substantial time commitment. I will reserve judgment until I am further along in my process of either rejection or conversion. But in the meantime, what absolutely thrilled me is the number of letters that we received from fans and friends of this show, either trying to explain hockey to me or even more touchingly, trying to convince me that their team is the team to follow. I, I want to share a little bit of a very, very long note we got from former guest of the show, tablet contributor Armin Rosen. Hockey, Armin writes, is a violent and balletic struggle to establish primacy over faith and the elements, whereas football and basketball are all about faith and the elements, ceaseless assault, and human arrogance. And you know what? <laughs> I completely get it. If I get nothing else about hockey, I don't know the rules yet. I don't know what the, who the teams are, who the stars are. I, I'm just watching in a kind of like metaphysical way. But I kind of get that struggle against the elements and absolute chaos. And, um, you know, midterm report, I'm sort of loving. Well, we're going to hold off. You're on the journey. I'm on the derech, as they say. By the way, all I have to do now is just insult a random sport and just receive an education. So much mail. Curling sucks. It's idiotic. It's people with the broom on ice. It's like hockey for knee freaks. Come, come at me. To the news of the Jews, a bit of a grab bag today. I wouldn't say there's one overarching story in world Jewland. Etsy removed the Camp Auschwitz shirt from its online store. How long was it up there? And how many people bought that? I just have so many questions about the Camp Auschwitz shirt. See, it's funny because I hadn't pictured it being on Etsy. I had pictured it being on Public or one of those other t-shirt a la carte design stores where you can choose your color, you can choose your font, and then you could choose, like, do you want it to say staff on the back? Do you want the little icon on the breast pocket? I was see seeing it as a kind of DIY designing experience for people rather than a crafty expression of some Etsy artist's personal vision. Well, who is like the neo-Nazi on Etsy? Like, that just doesn't seem like a warm and welcoming community for you. The neo-Etsy, you mean? I did have 10 minutes where I toyed with a, a humor piece about, you know, having been thrown off of Parler and Gab and Twitter. The entire outgoing Trump administration just now upset that finally they've been thrown off of Etsy. And like, Ben Shapiro can no longer sell his little crafted patchouli sacks. And, you know, Stephen Miller will have to go to a, another online market to sell his soaps, his artisanal soaps. But I think they're all on Etsy. Made in America. But it's funny because it's like Etsy is full of like resist, like tapestries <laughs> and things that say like nasty woman. And you're like, and then the Camp Auschwitz lives here too. And no one really stopped it. I don't know. Anyway, it's it, that's for me the most disturbing part of the story. I think it's actually super interesting. You know, like the guy with the horns, the QAnon shaman that we're oh, yeah. obsessed with in this show. <laughs> the shirtless guy with the fur? Yeah, when he was arrested, requested to 
receive organic food because he doesn't eat anything that's not organic because he's also a sort of new age health freak. <laughs> I actually love the turn that the neo-Nazis are all on Etsy, which sounds like a Kinky Friedman song, like the neo-Nazis are all on Etsy. Maybe it will like open up their chakras like in like interesting ways. Yeah. It would... Okay. <laughs> so they're like neo-Nazi hipster new age seekers. Right. Look, if there's one thing that everyone hates about the old Nazis is like how corporate they were. It's like very industrial. They're so uptight. Right? Like everything's like, very German. this is a factory. This is a camp with a machine. Like, man, if you tried the sort of artisanal, homemade, organic, small batch <laughs> approach, maybe you'll make more inroads with people. It's a little more niche. It's, you it know, is. it's it's not for everyone. It's not the one size fits all triumph of the will. You see the swastika? I macramed it myself, yeah. The triumph of the small batch patchouli sack. Like needlepoint. This is disturbing. Some condolences to the Adelson family. Straight out of Las Vegas. GOP mega donor and casino magnate Sheldon Adelson has died at 87, prompting the internal discussion here at Tablet. Did he really say Adelson? Because I think we've been saying Adelson. Yeah, the Times obit said it was Adelson, A-D-D-L-E. Like they pronounce it like that. We've been saying Adelson for years. I'm years. embarrassed. Like, that, how did we get that wrong? Apologies to the Adelsons for having mispronounced his name. Big props to Congressman Jerry Nadler, who brought Zabars to the House impeachment vote. Um, it's actually Nadler. Jerry Nadler from the Upper West Side. It was amazing. And it because it was like a big Zabars bag, and he just brought it with him with his lunch. And it led the internet to start questioning, like, what was in it? Was it a babka? Was it a hala? Like, was it, like, what was in the bag? Meanwhile, AOC showed up with Russ and Daughters. Former Congresswoman Nita Lowy is at home noshing on uh, on Ratners. Barney Greengrass. Yeah, they're all they're all being sponsored by different New York City eating and appetizing establishments. By the way, nothing the Jews love more than like Jewish food spotting right. on C-SPAN now. Now that we all watch like CNN all day long, it's like, did Jerry Nadler bring a Zabar's bag to like enter? What's the signal that he's sending us? Is Ossoff eating a black and white cookie? Is that a macaroon in Raphael Warnock's lunch to go? That, by the way, would be if instead of like dumb caucuses in Congress, they had like the Russ and Daughters caucus. <laughs> and it was just a- like the Rugala versus black and white cookie. Or maybe like rainbow cookies, because that's, you know, yeah. who does that belong to? That's not really ours. That's Italian. Speaking of dumb caucuses sort of transcending politics, there was a house a block from where I live that had a sign outside, you know, amidst all of the the Biden signs in my neighborhood or Biden, Biden-Harris. I like that there are the Biden signs in your, in your New Haven neighborhood and then the Biden-Harris signs. That is the big rift. <laughs> There's people have the Biden sign and then like stapled Harris on, to, like did a <laughs> DIY Harris that their kids did it and they stapled That's it the on. That's the diversity of political thoughts. Yep. Some people had it next to their science is real. Everyone is welcome here. Everyone is welcome here, right. Hey, has no home here. <laughs> That's right. It used to. It moved. And in the midst of all of that, there was a sign that said, um, presidents are temporary. Wu-Tang is forever. <laughs> and I thought, I kind of want that sign, actually. Not only did it give me an opportunity to discuss, to explain Wu-Tang to my children, but it's kind of true. Little known fact, that was on the front lawn of Joe Lieberman's house. <laughs> that, <that's- laughs> Former vice presidential nominee and big Wu-Tang fan, Joseph Lieberman. I will say, in New York City, I live in the West Village, I walk past a lot of like brownstones that say like, everyone is welcome here. And I'm like, is everyone welcome? Either like yeah. fancy ass, like your single family brownstone. Everyone with a $3.4 million bank account is welcome right here. I love it. I love it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go in. You told me all races and religions are welcome here. Everyone is welcome here if our private security company says they are. The ones like with the with the chains, so you can't even get up the steps to, to like take a picture of the Sarah Jessica Parker house. Can't even hang on the stoop. You should take Cat Stevens out in a little cat carrying sack and walk up in your pajamas and <laughs> slippers and knock on the door say, am I welcome? I too voted for Biden-Harris. I'm hungry. <laughs> Could I come in? Do you have Zabars? Wu-Tang's forever. 
Uh, and then a bit of sad news. The ancestral synagogue of shaman and songwriter Leonard Cohen in Montreal was vandalized. Now, Leo, you were saying that this is actually his family had founded this shul? His grandfather did? Yeah, so someone basically spray-painted swastikas around the synagogue at like 2 o'clock on a Wednesday. And you're like, that's freaking bold. He was detained by a security guard who was obviously there because we need that at synagogues, unfortunately. Um, I don't know that it's bold, Stephanie, so much as it's Canadian. I think whoever did it was like a very polite anti-Semite. It's like, if I'm going to do it, like they should see me do it. I shouldn't go at night because that's rude. Definitely do it in the daylight hours. And, you know, we weren't going to talk about this on News of the Jews because every week we could do this synagogue was vandalized or that synagogue was vandalized or that Jewish community center was vandalized. We, we get that in our news feed pretty much weekly. But then I had a thought, which is, um, I just feel like the bigots out there are spending a lot of time on the synagogues, and I feel like it's done. I feel it's played out. They also spent a lot of time in the black churches. <laughs> just once, you know, could we just read about, you know, a quiet United Methodist church in rural Iowa being vandalized? Just, just Or how about the Presbyterian? Surely there's a Presbyterian church in Idaho, and I want someone to scrawl on it, you know, Presbyterians get out, and just see see how that plays in the news. Because the Jews have sort of been done. It reminds me, it's not like you can't have bigotry toward other faiths. Thanks for reminding us that. That's an important message in these in these divisive times. It's important to remember that you can hate everyone. We need to spread the hate. Enough with the Jews. It's played out. You've done it. You've gotten We don't even give you attention anymore. Just vandalizing a normal everyday shul, you're not even going to get on the Jewish podcast. So what you're saying is now that you guys are an Etsy, maybe it's time to think like outside the... <laughs> burning cross. Maybe like a like a hand crocheted swastika, like a little like needlepoint pillow. Like show yeah. us what you've been working on. That's right. Branch out. Yeah, the like spray painted swastikas. Uh-uh. It's not going to cut it in 2021. If you want to impress us. So passé. It's been totally done. And finally, uh some more sad news of the Jews. Sylvain Sylvain, the rock guitarist known for his work with the pioneering New York proto-punk band, the New York Dolls died earlier this week. Turns out, of course, like all proto-punkers, he was a Jew. I'm quoting from the New York Times. Sylvain Sylvain Mizrahi was born on February 14th, 1951 in Cairo. His father, David, a banker, was part of a family of Sephardic Jews originally from Turkey, and his mother, Marcel, was of Syrian descent. The Suez Canal crisis of 1956 precipitated when Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, nationalized the canal led to the family's emigration. Nasser purged the country not only of British and French citizens and sympathizers, but also of Jews of every nationality, Mr. Sylvain wrote in his memoir. The Mizrahi family, my family, was just one of thousands caught up in the nightmare. We bid farewell to one of the surviving members, one of the few surviving members of the New York Dolls. our live show with Beth Sholem Congregation last week. You already know how amazing our guests, Jamie and Brian Stelter, were. They were funny. They were smart. They were maybe or maybe not wearing pants. We don't know. We just saw them up top. For the rest of you, you are in for a treat. Here's our interview with our Jew-Gentile team, Jamie and Brian, from our live show. We 
we have some amazing guests tonight. It's a Jew Gentile one-two punch, which is how we like it on our show. Jamie Stelter is the traffic reporter for New York One, Emmy-nominated traffic reporter. And her husband, Brian, is the chief media correspondent for CNN, the host of CNN's Reliable Sources, and the author of a couple terrific books that I've relied on myself in my own reporting. And we welcome the Stelters to Unorthodox. Thank Thank you for having us. So good to have you here. So where are you right now? We are actually in what we call Bubby's room. (laughs) That is what our kids call my mom. And this is where my parents used to come and stay in our guest spare bedroom in our apartment in Manhattan. And where they will stay again as soon as we all get vaccinated. Exactly. What is your your home Zoom setup? I like got a ring light. I mean, you guys, I see that light back there. Are you back in the studio yet? This is a sensitive subject, Stephanie. This is going <laughs> to get me in trouble because... Let's start here then. Jamie does not like my CNN. When, so, all right. So here's the truth. I, I well, what's the truth? You, you tell them the truth. <laughs> is, is that I prefer when things are well thought out and when they are well decorated and someone has taken the time and care to put certain things in a background and make sure that you can see certain things and not see certain things. And he prefers things a little more haphazard. I, I just roam around the house <laughs> using different backdrops based on my mood. So like last night, I went on CNN from this room. And then uh, in the morning, I went live from the living room. And Jamie's not a big fan of that. I usually find out where he was, like when someone sends me a clip and they're like, I love that avocado pillow in Which your house. Right and I'm like, how did you see the avocado <laughs> pillow in my house? pillow. It is a good pillow. So that's our life. <laughs> do you have a green screen room? No. That's a no, great idea. No. Can we do that? No. Bubby's room could get a green screen. Just just one wall that's all bright green? I mean, that seems... Well, I'm really into that idea. A natural home decor. The truth is, like, for a long time, Jamie was at home doing her show for New York One. And Bubby's room became a, a real TV studio with real lights and a real camera and a real background. And the best thing about that was then I could use her equipment for CNN. So we were kind of, uh, we were tag teaming for a while during the height of the pandemic in New York. One of us is excited for COVID to be over one of these days. (laughs) (laughs) I did see a very cute video, Jamie, on your Instagram of your daughter watching you, Brian, on TV and just saying, daddy, daddy. So is she, are they used to that by now? Oh yeah. Seeing you on screens? Yeah, they sometimes... When you say like where's daddy, like they'll they run to the TV if he's not home. <laughs> and then they they look and it's like, oh, that's not, that's not daddy. <laughs> what I what I like though is that uh, story who's like uh, 17 months old. Oh, we got that right. He now knows like what time of day it is based on when Jamie's on TV. Like he'll wake up and say mama, and he means he wants to watch mama on TV which is pretty intense. So I want to talk a little bit about being on TV because, you know, Brian, you're in CNN, which is a channel. A lot of people watch. However, Jamie, you're on New York One. And as someone who's been watching you with his entire family on New York One for a very long time, I think the level of obsession with the people who are on your local news and the first thing that you see when you wake up in the morning, the level of emotional attachment, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's like, Far, far more obsessive and hardcore than anything on like big national news. Yeah. Do you feel that? Do you have like, yes. I mean, you have at least one crazed family of fans, but like, do you feel that? Do you get that a lot? I do. It's a, it's a more obsessive, but also it's more personal because more people see Brian for sure by far and away. But the difference is that 
he doesn't ever share anything about his life. He's talking about the news. I'm constantly talking about what restaurants I will in before times, what restaurants I ate at, what parks I've been to, what museums. And, you know, I show videos of my kids all the time on TV. So it's just such a more personal interaction. I always say that I get stopped more on the street because people like their local news people more. That's true. And no one is ever going to stop you and say, I hate that guy. You know, well, I mean? maybe once or twice for me. But, <laughs> but I feel like what you're saying about local news was true when you were in Philly and folks at Best Alone could watch you. And now it's even more true in New York. Even though the city is bigger, like the city feels smaller when you know New York one. Yeah. Amen. Can you tell the story of how you got together? It involves Pat Kiernan, right? Oh. It does. Wait. A New York one love story? Was our first date 10 years ago today? I think it was. <gasps> I hope I didn't miss this. January 11th? I think it was. No, I think it's Oh, tomorrow. my. Okay, well, we met on Twitter. He's going to look it up right now. I was (laughs) tweeting the traffic. I was being a good Jew, and I was working on Christmas and all the days around it. And I was tweeting the traffic, and he's a huge weather nerd. And he was so mad that he was home in Maryland for Christmas. I was missing, the, I was missing the blizzard. There we go, Jew and Gentile. Yeah. I was home for Christmas. <laughs> he was uh, missing a massive snowstorm. Anyway, he saw my tweets and he said that the tweets are what interested him. And he then messaged, he saw in my bio that I worked at New York One. He messaged Pat Kiernan for anyone watching that's the main morning anchor that I work with in the mornings. He asked Pat if I was single and Pat basically gave him my social security number and was like, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he provided uh, moral support and more than that. I have to ask, I'm fairly obsessed with traffic reporter as a genre because it does seem that in a lot of <laughs> local markets and my best friend in my life, my friend Derek, whom I've been friends with since nursery school, spent a lot of time in local TV and the traffic reporter so often had the personality and it was this place where you could sort of play a little bit. Is there something about traffic reporting? Mean, how do you see it as, as a genre? It's traffic, it's transit, it hits people at their best and their worst. I mean, how do you theorize what exactly you do? The commute was so central to everyone's morning routine in some way, shape, or form. And it hit such a personal note in that way. And I think that a lot of people sort of see that person as sort of like the guide of that. And not just a messenger, but someone who's either like getting their train on time or not. Like they give me certain powers that I absolutely do not have. But, you know, because the nature of a morning show, it allows you to to have some fun with it. And you have to joke around about it because the commute at least used to be really terrible. And so you have to have fun with it. I want to know, as a traffic reporter, like who drives when when you guys are driving, like (laughs) backseat driving? Like what's the what's the transit? Like what's the drama in real life? So there's Um, a lot of drama. Do we have to? to, um... I'll just say that. I prefer to drive. <laughs> I also prefer to drive. <laughs> um, when I drive, I take it very seriously and it's it's a responsibility and I only drive. And when he's driving, he's like cooking meals, drinking coffee, make rolling calls. Like, you know, it's like driving is one of the things that he's doing. The, 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 well, that's true. I, the, I don't deny any of that. <laughs> there was a, the, we, we had a little breaking point recently when I got out of fork. <laughs> And I wanted to eat my breakfast with a fork while driving. While driving. Apparently that's too much. Apparently I crossed the line. 
I'm telling you, some people. So what'd you do? You just like shoveled it in? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought I was safe. I was on a boring road, but... Uh, I prefer to drive it. It feels safer. That I way. do have good news, by the way. I did not miss our 10-year anniversary of our first date. It's in a couple of days. That's in two days. That's a lot of anniversaries to keep track of. Not just wedding, but first date as well. That's that's quite the bar. Oh, no, this is a big year for me. I view 2021 as a year of uh, anniversaries, starting with first date and then first real date. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be wild. We're going to have a blast. I hope you don't mind if I take the next question that came in in the chat because this one's fabulous. It's a little mildly hostile, confrontational, but but also loving. It's a Jewish mother's question. It's from Monique. She writes, "There is capital letters no way that Brian isn't Jewish." <laughs> Please ask him about his mother's 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 lineage. <laughs> Well, I have some research to do, clearly. We are breaking news here tonight, apparently, which is that you're not Jewish. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, this happens at least once a month. I disappoint a lot of people. It may have happened uh, 30 minutes ago on the phone, actually, when I told them I was doing this podcast. What are you? Ethnically, what are you, Brian? I'm a mess. I don't know what I am. United Methodist. Oh, that's interesting. I was, yeah, I was confirmed. I was confirmed in the United Methodist Church. But I have to be honest, I don't know nearly enough about my mom or my dad. I, I I don't know the family tree nearly well enough, so. <laughs> you should do, we'll pay for it. If you want to send us the bill, you go do My Ancestry or 23andMe. You'll come back on. We will do the reveal on Unorthodox. Maybe they can just sponsor the podcast. Guys, let's just have them sponsor. I like the way you think. Phyllis Levy just wrote in, he looks just like my dad at that age. There's their proof. It's like, Phyllis says you look just like her dad. So game over. You don't even have to do the other stuff. So listen, since we're talking about all things Jewish, you know, we have this thing that we do that is great in which there's 25 hours where you get to totally unplug from all the mess around you. You guys are really, I imagine, especially you, Brian, completely and thoroughly in the thick of it. Do you have some form of Shabbat? Do you have some moment in the week in which you said, I am going to turn this fucking phone off and not look at it for X amount of time? It's one of the things I appreciate most about Jamie and about joining her family is Friday night. You know, we, we went out and, and bought a farmhouse and we're always there by Friday night. And uh, even if it's just ordering Chinese food or something, although Jamie likes to cook, so it's usually a home cooked meal. It is a chance to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, we try. We've, we used to be in the Hala Club at Sunny School. That's our daughter. Yeah, Hala Club. <laughs> Where they send Tomahala every did week. Did the club stop or did we, did we lose our I membership? didn't join because I've been trying to lose weight. So I didn't join the Hala Club. <laughs> the first rule of Hala Club is that you don't talk about Hala Club. <laughs> the whole thing is that everyone has a bite and then I wind up eating it all weekend. So we're honorary members of the Hala Club. Honorary members. But we, we try in some way, whether it's, lighting the candles, talking about, you know, a highlight of the week, something good that happened. And listen, the only times that it gets ruined is, uh, well, I don't want to blame the president, but, uh, you know, Twitter banned him at six o'clock on Friday and I had to run into the closet and go on TV. So I guess that's actually Twitter's fault, not Trump's fault. Everything is Twitter's fault. Everything is Twitter's, Twitter's fault. fault. <laughs> if it's not Trump's fault, it's Twitter's fault. As a follow-up to this question, Shabbat aside, is there something that you do after now, not just weeks or months, but years. Liel, are you about to use the word mindfulness? Unplug. You're about to ask him if he has a mindfulness practice, I don't aren't want to you? put words in Brian's mouth, <laughs> but, but I do want to ask, how do you decompress from this? Because this seems to me, you know, watching you on TV so much, it's a never-ending torrent of misery and abuse and bad news year after year, month after month, day after day. Is there something that you do on a daily basis, monthly basis, or is it just kind of standing there and, you know, 
letting the wind take over. It looks like Jamie wants to answer the question. No, he doesn't. He never She's shaking her down. head no. He hates to relax. He hates to stop. <laughs> he hates to put the phone down. It's true. It's true. He <laughs> thrives on the crazy. He does. Uh, here's the truth. After my show on Sunday at noon, I go home and I nap for like two or three hours. And that is like awesome. That is a that is a beautiful rest. And do your kids know to like leave you alone then? Um, to the extent that kids know anything, you know, <laughs> yeah. But you know, if they want to come, it's it's makes it better. But so then help that's helpful. And then actually, I think I would say I crash for a day or two every few weeks. It's not really obvious when I crash, but I in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm off for a couple of days. I don't tell anyone. I just. Kind of happens. How old are your kids? Sunny is three and a half and Story is one and a half. As a fellow parent, I have a question for you. Yeah. What's the biggest parenting conflict you've had, if any? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind, I'll let her think about her answer, is that I'm not good at doing bedtime. Uh, I am a sucker. I am easily manipulated. <laughs> Which, you know, you'd think I'm a reporter and I deal with sources all the time. And I think I'm really savvy about not being manipulated. I think I'm the one manipulating them to tell me what they don't want to tell me. When it comes to my daughter, she controls me completely. <laughs> it's 1030 at night sometimes and she won't go to bed and we're just hanging out, chilling, you know, working on the newsletter together. Is that a good thing? And that, and that is a, that is a, um, that is a problem. That is say. a problem. Is that a good answer? That is. <laughs> I love her too much. You know? I'm right there with you. I am, I am easily manipulable. Okay. Another personal question inside, inside the household question. <laughs> Were there conversations about religion before you guys got married? There were. There definitely were. I think... I think you felt stronger ties than I I did. Yeah. Brian really celebrated sort of Christmas and Easter, and that was kind of the extent of religion in his family or life that he was at least bringing into his adult life. And for me, I had extensive traditions and things that I enjoyed and practiced and knew and, you know, had in my life from a really young age. And I think it was Passover was one of the first times that you came, you came to a Seder, which was sort of like, and I'm thinking, why don't we do this? Like one of the big, like introductions to my family. And I remember afterwards how much it was less about the Judaism of it and more he really just loved everyone singing all the same songs and knowing all the traditions and sort of having this big routine and way about a holiday that he didn't really have. And I think he really appreciated that with each holiday, my family has all these things. And And also one of the best things that's ever happened to me is your parents. And being able to lean into them, lean into their lives. Hey, they're watching. No, they're, they're watching. watching. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, uh, but it also Hallelujah. To be the truth. It's not just in-law bait. It <laughs> happens to be true. What, what's the phrase? Jew-ish? Isn't that what sometimes yeah. I say? You know, I'm Jew-ish. You know, I'm, I'm you learning. Know, we, talked I'm learning. About, we talked about holidays. We talked about, and I always, I was always really honest that I knew I wanted to raise my kids Jewish and you know, if he wanted to continue celebrating Christmas and Easter, we could absolutely continue to do that. But I wasn't going to sort of give up or budge away from my Judaism at all. And he, I think, really respected that. And he liked everything that he saw, honestly. He loved 
all the holidays and the, and the I just wish we could get back to the JCC in this pandemic. <laughs> JCCs where Gentiles play racquetball. I mean, look, that's that's what we gave to the and, world. And teach their kids how to swim. Yeah. That's and I right. just, I don't know, we, there was a part of me totally honest. Like when we did Christmas the first time, I like, oh, I cried and had like a really big breakdown. Ooh. I felt like part of my Judaism died a little bit. And we had a little bit of, you know, we had to like have a reset and like a heart to heart about what all of it was, but really beyond that, it was. Yeah. But this year you wanted a bigger tree. (laughs) I did. Well, now I'm like, now I'm in now. I'm like, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. (laughs) I think the best thing about Christmas or Jamie was going to the container store and buying all the stuff to how to put it away and what to do with the ornaments. I, I think she's just into the organization of it all. That's my theory. I mean, it really is the best of both worlds because you get the Christmas. Tr- I mean, you it's very lucky. Yeah, no, we're, listen, we're very lucky. I just think the first time that Sunny started to sing the song she's learned in school. Oh my God, she loves Such Dave. a defining moment, I think, for any parent. We should say, we go, she goes to preschool at a, at a synagogue. And so they have a blessing leader and she sings the Hamotzi. It's just such a, it's like just a, an incredible moment to see that. It's beautiful. There is something about little children. Like we got my son, David, a little plushy toy Torah for Hanukkah because he likes, he likes the ones at synagogue and he carries around all the time now and just wants to sing the the blessing over the opening of the ark. And then it like, then he sings all these other synagogue blessings. It's just, it triggers him into Jewish space when he holds his little plushy Torah. And it's, it's just children. Children are amazing. They kind of rock. They kind of rock. We have a question in here from Ann and Harvey Rubin who say, can Jamie talk about her writing and opening up discussions about miscarriage? Yes. So really long story short is that both of our children, we did IVF for. I had a series of miscarriages before each child, before Sunny, and then we did IVF. And then we tried IVF again for story with some of those same embryos. And I had more miscarriages. And it was a really sad, hard time. And I think mostly because of social media and how social media made me feel when I was trying to have a baby and it felt like Mm -hmm. everyone was pregnant, Mm -hmm. that it really felt weird to announce that I was pregnant, which I had to do because I'm on television. So I, I had to address the fact that I was growing a child. And it felt really strange to do that and not acknowledge what it took to get there. It almost felt like living some kind of lie just to be like, poof, oh, I'm pregnant. And because those stories really made me upset when I was trying to get pregnant for the people that felt like they just looked at their husband and had a baby. And so... (laughs) Is that how it works? (laughs) (laughs) And so, I don't know. I just, I never considered not talking about it, honestly. And so Mm -hmm. I, I posted an Instagram about it, not really thinking much about it. And then it really struck a nerve and you know, some magazines and things asked me to write about it. And then I became a lot more vocal about it. And in turn, almost daily still, and it's been years since I've talked about it, I still get messages from people thanking me for talking about it or asking me questions. What doctor do you use? Or what do you recommend? Or what helped you during those times? So many more women go through this than we know. And it's an awful thing to go through alone. And so I just, I never considered it any other way. I think this is very admirable and I I hate to change the the tone, but there's a very important question from Benjamin Cohen. 
who writes, This weekend, Jamie posted a hilarious Instagram pic of Brian doing a CNN spot from home with no pants on. Question from the audience. Brian, are you wearing pants right now? He is. Wait, well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, right now I'm wearing sweatpants. Do sweatpants count as pants? Barely. So do you tuck the button down into sweatpants? Might have. Or, or do you go no tuck? <laughs> it's all about, look, it's all about chest up until the end of the pandemic. That's all that counts until the end of the pandemic. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and beyond. It's all zoom up. I put on my suit pants for the first time in eight months and I was blown away. But it honestly, it almost speaks to like the same miscarriage conversation. It's like, who are you trying to fool by like putting on these pretenses for people? You know, it's like, yes, it's funny. And I knew it would get a laugh, but it's also just like, this is the world we live in. It's so weird. And no one's getting fully dressed. They don't have to. And so like, and I actually think, you know, it's easier for me to get guests on CNN because they're at home already. Seeing people home makes people feel more relatable oh, too. For our podcast, everybody says yes to us now. I mean, not just you guys, but like it's it's amazing the guests we're getting. Nobel Prize winners, MacArthur Genius. I mean, people are bored. People are bored at home. And it's like these Jews in New York want to talk to me for an hour. Nick Hornby over in England. We wanted to talk about high fidelity, the new reboot like, of it. Sure. Nick Nick Hornby. Oh, some yids want to talk high fidelity? Of course. He's, he logs right in. I mean, it's like you know, wait, you know, Jamie, I think what you're saying is really interesting. And I think that that's why people are really like you have this really big online following, not just through your work, but I mean, people really find your family. You're both on TV. So in many ways, you're seemingly not that relatable, but you are in so many ways. And you share, you know, the ups and downs and like not just the cute pictures of your kids, but the behind the scenes of getting those cute pictures. I mean, how much of that has sort of happened organically and how much of that are you realizing like you're consciously trying to sort of like pull the curtain back? No, I think most of it is organic. If she ever does it consciously, I'm going to take her phone away. (laughs) It's I don't want to be one of those families that is is doing it for the the likes or the... Yeah, we're not in it for like the the content creation. It's like, I just, (laughs) it's really just organic. I think that it's, I think it's fun. And I think my followers and my friends and the people that I engage with, like, we have real conversations. Like, and it doesn't have to be about anything serious. Like the other morning I posted at 6.30 in the morning on Saturday or Sunday. And I wrote something like, they've been up for an hour already. And (laughs) I got so many messages from people like, I feel so seen. Thanks for keeping it real. (laughs) Like, you know, have you tried? And then there's lots of other people like, have you tried messing with their naps at all? Or what are you feeding them? Like, there's been a great feedback loop of parenting and advice and sort of like support that I have found through posting about the kids from little things like, how do I get her to eat this? Or what kind of smoothie cup are you using? And it's, I don't know, it's really been a beautiful, helpful thing for me. I did think of one thing that we did just for the Instagram likes though, the tractor. When we bought the farmhouse, we had the owner sell us his old tractor, like his old, you know, John Deere. I don't know how to drive it yet. I I don't know if I'll ever learn how to get out of the barn, (laughs) but it is a great Instagram prop. (laughs) So speaking of parenting, what's your TV policy? Are you letting your kids watch TV? Would it be only news growing up? What's the idea? We don't have a screen time policy. It's whenever (laughs) mom and dad need need a minute, the, the screen is there. That's a great policy. I'm not always proud of it, but 
We do. She learns so much from YouTube that I can't sit here and trash <laughs> things on entirely. We believe, right? we, we do believe that it will be good for her well, and eventually him to know their way around the iPad and to be tech savvy. And yes, a little bit of that is like spin to make ourselves feel better, but it is what it is. We're always on our phones. How can we be on our phones all day and then say, no, you can't look at a screen, but mommy and daddy can look at screens. We do have to have a reset every once in a while though. For example, this morning I had to take the iPad away. And you know, the problem is Sunny, she's starting to climb to find it. So there's like, (laughs) she'll go in the closet, she'll get up to try to find where I put the iPad. So I'm having to come up with better and better hiding places. I always say, I don't know how anyone parents without screens and ice cream. Yeah. It just seems to me you need, you need the bribery. And why was it? I got my first computer when I was five. I spent hundreds of thousands, probably tens of thousands of hours in the basement on that computer doing Lord knows what. And I came out okay. It's like when you weren't at Methodist youth group, you were on your computer. (laughs) We're almost out of time. I don't know if they told you this, Brian, but whenever a Gentile comes on our show, they get to ask us a question. If they have any questions about Judaism. Now, you, of course, have an in-house expert as well as an extended family. (laughs) But if there's anything that still baffles you about our crazy tribe that maybe you didn't want to ask, you know, the in-laws or or whatever, just something. And this is a safe space. We're not going to tell anyone. So you could, it can be, it can be, totally it can be rude. It can be offensive. 200 of your mother and father-in-law's closest friends. <laughs> yeah. No one's going to dime you out about this. So just Brian, any questions at all that you still like, what about these Jews? Oh, I have questions. What happens after I die? Can a person really change? Where is God in times of tragedy? Tell me everything. I guess we asked for it. I got it. See, I knew it. I knew I could something. All right. Which of those do you want to take, Stephanie? This is my favorite part of the show, the Gentile of the Week question. And so often when we have someone who was raised Christian on the show, they ask questions that are, a lot of them are like, well, what do I tell my kids about what happens after you die? Which is a, a common one. But there always is this funny thing that comes up, which is like, if I stop going to church, then I'm not Christian anymore. Like, if I stop believing, I'm not like X anymore. And there's so many people who wonder, like, mm. how come so many Jews I know, like, say they don't believe in God, but still are proudly Jewish? So, like, is funny. I mean, this this is my favorite sort of moment of the show where, like, you really get to tease out some of these questions. Um, I don't know. Where is God? And I don't know. I don't know that one. After you die, you don't have to be on Twitter anymore. That's probably the only thing we say with certainty. But unless you're bad and then you always have to Correct. be on Twitter. I'll, I'll take the one, can people change? My friend Andy Boone, who's a Quaker, but is very Jewish and is married into a Jewish family. He um, He's done many rabbinic discourses on the question of whether people are changeful and whether they can improve. And his answer is basically the reunion answer, which is when you go to your 20th reunion, you realize all the people who were total yo-yos back in high school at the age of 38, they're still the yo-yos and the nice people are still nice. And it's his belief, nobody ever changes. So I with Rabbi Boone. Nobody ever changes. I'm glad I like you already. (laughs) There you go. And the other one, we've solved heaven and hell. We've solved do people change. I think that's good. I think we've done our- Thank you. We've done our share for tonight. I might call call back later for more. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's just great to be virtually at the hearth with all of you. I will tell everyone here that we're having a very fiery debate on our show about like, what's more Jewish, Tasty Cakes or Drake's Cakes or Little Debbie's. And it depends on where in the country you're from and your level of keeping kosher. But Tasty Cakes are kosher, apparently. Jamie and Brian, do you have a verdict on that question? For me, it's Tasty Cakes all the way. Of course. Or of course it is. Because you're quality. You would even add in maybe endements to that discussion. Apparently for a lot of people, endements replaced whatever they were eating once endements got their kosher certification. <laughs> Jamie and Brian Stelter, thank you so much.
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. Most of our mail this week, I would say, was from listeners, from members of the J. Crew, telling Liel either why he should be a hockey fan or why he should be a fan of their specific favorite team. I should say that the choices were wide but geographically narrow. It was a lot of people from Canada and the Northeast saying, be a fan of the Flyers, be a fan of the Bruins. You know, I was hoping for a Mighty Ducks fan. There was a San Jose Sharks mail. Was there a San Jose Sharks? Okay, oh, my yes, there was. Yeah. Um, but we're going to save a lot of those letters for next week when Liel's going to give the big reveal about which hockey team he is pledging his devotion and troth to. By the way, there is no narrative thread on this podcast that we won't pull out for several episodes to keep you coming back. Correct. (laughs) But for this week, I just want to read one letter because some of you have heard Sarah Fredman Ader, our producer, talk on this show before about the Orthodox Jewish obsession with the indoor gym-based, sneaker-based version of ice hockey known as floor hockey, something that is not knowable to those of us outside the Orthodox bubble. Except for the one New York Times article about it once, which was great. (laughs) That's right. But we got a letter this week that merged floor hockey, Orthodox Judaism, Liel, ice hockey, the J. Crew, inside baseball, etc. Floor hockey is actually called inside baseball. Here Here it is. Hi, crew. I hope you're well. I wanted to make sure you knew that Liel's favorite rabbi, Rabbi David Ingber, of the Congregation Romamu on the Upper West Side, 
was one of the all-time great yeshiva floor hockey goalies and also a great teammate. Have a great Shabbos. Daniel Altman, Ramaz School, class of 1987. I love that you can like become a rabbi and everyone's like, yeah, he's a good rabbi. He was a great floor <laughs> hockey teammate. And not even that he was a great player. Like he was a great player, but a better teammate. Well, also on the walls of Ramaz, where so many alumni are rabbis, you don't get a picture in the Alumni Hall of Fame for being a rabbi. They're all, they're all rabbis. But the Floor Hockey Hall of Fame in Ramaz has a big Ingber shrine that shows him posing with his stick and his yarmulke perched atop his fro. And this would explain why he uh, sometimes just body slams the assistant rabbi into the ark in <laughs> random moments of the service. Producer Sarah here letting you know that I'm throwing the Maya Note Rapids into the ring for Liel's favorite team. Consider them. Is that a floor hockey team? That was my floor hockey team, the Maya Note Rapids. <laughs> so an all-girls floor hockey team. I mean, I want to watch the movie about them. I want to watch A League of Their Own remade to talk about their fight. Glow. You want the glow about? Yeah, I want glow. Heavy, heavy padding, big helmet, braid flying behind you. It's amazing. Skirts? No, no, we wore sweatpants. Nice. Oh. Nice. <laughs> we were crazy. Crazy. Hold on, who who would play Sarf and Manader in the movie version of this? Gal Gadot. <laughs> who else? The ringer from Israel. I've always heard Michelle Trachtenberg would play me in a movie. Oh, I love that. She's so good mm. at like prep school. Michelle Trachtenberg is Sarf and Manader. In a world where Jews aren't especially coordinated, one sport could keep us occupied. Well, in fact, Leo, you joke, but they've actually made a movie. It's coming out in 2021, direct to streaming. Unfortunately, you can't see it in the Cineplex, about Sarah Fredman Ader's career with the Mayanote Rapids. And, and we got a hold of the trailer. But if you want to hear that trailer, you have to listen all the way to the end of the credits. Back to the mailbox. This one close to my heart. Dear J. Crew, on your show today, Mark used the phrase Cooney Lemel in casual conversation. Well, yes, I did. I almost missed it. I know, you I was said wondering so about that. I've not heard that name since the third grade. That was the year 1980, maybe, when my sister's grade at our Jewish day school put on the play Shnei Kuni Lemel in Hebrew. They were in sixth grade. Thanks for the incredible memory, which until today was deep in the vault. I wonder how many of your listeners would understand the reference. I got it. Your show is great. Tamara Gorodetsky, Potomac, Maryland. What is a Kuni Lemel? You, who'd you describe? You described the Jew, like the Orthodox Jewish guy from Brooklyn who was part of the Capitol riots raid everything. As a Kuni Lemel. Yeah. What does that mean? Okay. So originally it was a Yiddish play. Yes. It was a stock character. He repeated, Correct. he recurred in many Yiddish plays. And my grandfather, Walter of Blessed Memory, loved using it as a put down. He, he would say, oh, that guy is such a Kuni Lemel. And it was like a, it was like a schnook, like a, a loser. The guy who always was on the receiving end of the business. Well, literally it means a dumb sheep. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is literally what the, what the Yiddish means, right? It's kind of like a shlemiel, a shlemazel, uh, a very yeah. innocent person, but super sweet. Not not someone that you have any kind of you know animosity towards. And of course, the, the guy you're rooting for and the star of many popular Yiddish entertainment. Ah, Lemmel, 
Right. The way my grandfather reused it, Akuni Lemo was a little bit simple. The reason you were rooting for him is because it wasn't his fault. He just was a little too dumb to be blameworthy. So wait, we are rooting for the guy in the fur at the Capitol, inside the Capitol, next to the Confederate flag holding guy? Only, only in that, the only way to make this all tie together is only if he was really deceived. If he's just like a simpleton and a fool and fell in with the wrong crowd. Yeah. And therefore went off. If someone, if someone told him at nine that morning, hey, we need a 10th guy for a minion. Come on this exactly. bus. We're driving to DC. <laughs> You'd be like, okay, <laughs> exactly. yes. Anyway, I don't know where it came from, Tamara Gordetsky. It came out deep in the vault. The spirits released it because I don't use it much, but it is a Grandpa Walter favorite. And I'm, I hope that we can all start calling people Kuni Lemels again. And now a call for all of us to put on our panel of Jewish experts hats and give some advice. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, my best friend is married to a non-practicing Christian man. He is more Jewish than a good portion of the Jews I know. He participates in holidays, Shabbat, and wants their son, now eight, to be raised Jewish. They do celebrate Christmas in their home, which is more of a celebration of traditions rather than a religious observance. Recently, their son has started saying he is half Jewish because his father is not Jewish and his mother is. His dad wants him to identify as fully Jewish and is considering taking Christmas away. As a Jewish professional, he came to me for advice, and I felt like taking Christmas away from an eight-year-old will make him hate being Jewish at this point in his life. I do not think he sees Christmas as a religious holiday. They don't go to church, and I doubt he even knows who Jesus is. Dad is considering conversion, but I do not think it's something he takes lightly and would not rush into that. What can he do to help his child feel completely Jewish? They participate in a shul, send him to religious school, and are hoping he can go to a Jewish sleepaway camp this summer. Any advice for a non-Jewish dad who wants his son to say he is Jewish? Not half? Thanks so much, Don. So this is a really, really good question. By the way, this is so true of so many people in the world, right? Like the non-Jewish spouse actually is an equal, if not greater, participant in the Jewish life. And this is why we're at for all the fretting about intermarriage. It's like, Actually, no, here's what you have is like a Christian dad who like wants his kid to feel fully Jewish. Who's bringing it, yeah. This is also like a lot of the stuff we talked to Jamie and Brian about earlier in the episode, right? Like mm-hmm. Brian feels like it's really important for them to do the Jewish stuff because he understands the connections that, that that Jamie has and he wants his children to have that. And he has it too almost. And so I don't know. I think that this episode should be a celebration of all of that. I don't. I don't know quite what to do here. This is a real tough one. I mean, they've gone down the Christmas path, right? And so now they have the Christmas tree and they're thinking, do we take the Christmas tree away to solidify our son's Jewish identity? I think that Dawn is right, that now once you have a kid who's had eight years of Christmas, which, you know, as Jews, we love, you can't yank the tree now. That does seem to send the wrong message. The Judaism is about taking the tree away. You you could traumatize a kid for life if he's grown up on the Christmas tree. Eight crazy years. <laughs> I don't know, Leo, what do you think? You yank the tree? You definitely don't yank the tree. I mean, first of all, look, let's begin with basics here. I mean, halakhically speaking, that kid is one bazillion percent Jew, no... One quadrillion percent. No questions asked, no exceptions made, right? But even otherwise, I mean, I think the path is is not going to be easy. I don't think there are any kind of, you know, magic bullets here. I don't think taking away Christmas as Dawn says, is, is a good idea at all. But I think continuing precisely to do the things that they're doing, which is basically having a Jewish life, you know, participating in shul and and telling the stories and celebrating the holidays and, and making Judaism sort of a central part of their family life. Like, that's the stuff that matters. I mean, a kid at eight could say something and then go through all kinds of emotional turbulence, but then the building blocks remain what they are. And the building blocks are going to be sort of fundamentally Jewish. And I completely agree with Stephanie. It is so incredible to see, you know, blended families and see spouses who aren't Jewish 
take to this mission of instilling Judaism with not just such sense of diligence, but but with real emotional connection. I see how this could happen. Like, you know, the first year they got a Christmas tree. They thought it was going to only last for one year. It lasted for eight. We've heard this before. (laughs) It's a familiar (laughs) holiday story. But look, I, I totally agree. You can't take the tree away. But I don't know. I think there are ways for dad in this scenario to talk about, like, I think you could sort of open a dialogue with an eight-year-old, especially if you've given him all of this. It sounds like he's a smart kid. And if dad is considering converting, I wonder what that does. I mean, it'll be interesting when he hits 13, like when he sort of gets into his early teen and and the the bar mitzvah question. I was about to say, this is a five-year story arc for unorthodox. The dad should start working in conversion now and then convert on the exact same day of the bar mitzvah, which we will air live. I mean, we've actually heard this before, I think, right? Like this idea of when your kid becomes a you know, a Jewish adult, then you also sort of take that plunge, so to speak, literally, uh, yourself. I love that idea. Stephanie, you're so right. Thank you. When you said they can talk to him about this, right? I mean, I'm amazed at the number of families I know. And this is going to sound like I mean Johnny Negativo here. That's my negative persona. But I'm actually being Stu Positivo, if you hear me out. So many families I know that do the right things, that have love in them, that are that are that have all these wonderful practices. I don't just mean religious. I mean, they're healthy families. They never talk about why they do those things. They never say, like, we love having game night with you, Sally, because game night's fun. They, they don't talk about the culture of the family or what their beliefs are, what their values are, often because they're not talkers. They're just kind of silent types and maybe they're staring into their phones or maybe they're reading their magazines or maybe they're crocheting, you know, little angel wings. I don't know. Swastikas. But if you have something about your family culture that you want your child to understand, which is, look, we have a Christmas tree because dad grew up with it and it's a fun thing to decorate. But our religious values and and the culture that we want to really build into is is Jewish. You can talk to an eight-year-old about that and they understand a little bit then and they understand it better when you have the conversations a couple years later when they're 10 or 11. Like, Actually explaining those things to them, children are not stupid. They will understand. And in fact, they've probably already perceived the tree is just a tree, but our holidays go deeper in a sense. How well do eight-year-olds understand matrilineal descent? Really well. Because that would confuse the hell out of me. No, it wouldn't. You Only what mom is matters. First cousin once removed confuses the hell out of you, Stephanie. But matrilineal descent, you'd get. Only mom matters is something that any kid will understand very viscerally. Yes. Right away, no problem. I know. Do you like how, how easily I'm doling out parenting advice? Yeah. I can barely keep track of my cat right now. My kids, by the way, say things to me like, well, you know, mom's the main parent. And I'm like, wait a second. I've done so much child rearing. They'll say, well, no, we love you, dad. I mean, not as much as we love mom because she's mom. I mean, kids kids will get will get this. You, you babysit us, but mom parents us. Exactly. That's right. Dear Unorthodox, we're applying to kindergarten for my son. And for an assessment, they asked for four videos of your kid doing prompted activities. In one, you have to give them a blank piece of paper and ask them to draw a person with as much detail as possible and describe what they draw. My son draws a circle. This is the head, he says. Two more circles. These are the eyes. Two lines at the top of the head. These are his horns. I froze with some serious yikes, but didn't say anything, and he finished drawing this person. Then he explained it's Bumblebee, his favorite transformer who likes to save the world, yada yada. Phew. However, I'm feeling very self-conscious about sending the video of my son drawing a horned person to Jewish school and kind of want to do what they say not to do, which is coach him, reshoot, etc. Silver lining, my non-Jewish husband said he'd never heard the Jews and horns thing and thought I was insane. All the best, Anna. Again, loving these non-Jewish husbands who (laughs) only think the best of Jews. That's right. Send it on. If this Jewish nursery school can't see the genius of your son giving horns to a transformer, if they're so caught up in their fear of anti-Semitism that they can't have a good yuck and uh, admit your son, who is 
a genius and quite precocious, you don't want them. You want the other nursery school or you want to keep your child at home forever. I see the statement and I raise you the notion that any freaking institution that has an assessment that requires four freaking videos for a kindergartner, you should only always send a picture of a horned person. Be like, here's a Jew. This is what dad taught me. That's it. You have a problem with that? <laughs> here's the other thing. This is a big lie because every Jewish school in the world needs all the applicants it can get. The idea that they're actually going to weed out a nice young Jewish child like your son it's, it's fake news. Your son's in no matter what you do. By the way, I love this idea that the next generation is not, this is not a stereotype that is going to last. Like, right. horns is done. No one thinks about it anymore. Well, horns is now things that QAnon people wear when they sack Congress. Yeah, the Viking look got appropriated by the freaking QAnons. Are you about to say that they're taking the horns away from us just like they took the bagel away from us? <laughs> they didn't take the bagel. We sort of like let go of the bagel. Once it got sliced lengthwise, widthwise, whatever it was, by a Panera. The bagel was a Q drop. We released it to the community. Now it's for them to all do what they want with it. On Facebook, a terrific post, Sarah Jane Ficken wrote, so I'm curious, what do you all do while listening to the podcast? Today, I caught up on the last two episodes while introducing our cows to the new goats. There was a photo, by the way. Oh, with the, of the cows and the goats? There was a photo of the cows meeting the goats. It was amazing. I think it went well. Patrick Cosgrove replies, I'm usually at work under a car while I listen to Unorthodox. That's just great. Um, Jeffrey Goldman writes, I was pandemic fired in March. I began a daily walk of about one and a half miles and usually listened to the Hamilton mixtape. I read about the Unorthodox podcast in the International Jerusalem Post and began listening. I'm now up to four miles a day and usually consumes a podcast. I really enjoy them. An observation. Mark Oppenheimer has an exact vocal doppelganger. Josh Flagg of Bravo's Million Dollar Listing in Los Angeles. Yours, Jeffrey <laughs> Goldman. <laughs> Wait, do you guys know about Josh Flagg? Josh Flagg's grandmother was a Holocaust survivor and she appeared <laughs> regularly on the show. Like she was a character. You know, like you get like the you get the relative on the show. She was a character. I believe she passed away, but he, like this amazing thing where he was on a freaking Bravo real estate show and he like had his survivor grandma on. I've actually wanted to get him on this show. So maybe this would be the push we need. Well, I think it's one thing to get the other Mark Oppenheimer, but if you're on a podcast where all you get is your voice and you can't tell the difference between the two speakers, it'll be amazing. Right. That's, I'm sorry for a minute. You're totally right. We have to see if anyone can tell us apart. <laughs> okay. We're booking. Well, guess who can book Josh Flagg? Sorry for a minute. That's, get, you get him today. A few weeks ago, listener Aaron Roller wrote in talking about his love for non tasty cake snack cakes. It was Little Debbie's or Drake cakes or something. And I called him a sociopath which got me yelled at by someone else. And there was a whole hullabaloo, a whole balagan. And now Aaron has chimed in once again with an incredible video on our Facebook page in which he does a taste test between Drake's yodels and a tasty cake butterscotch crimpet. Good morning, J. Crew. Aaron Roller here. Happy Heshva to everybody. So 2021 is already off to a good start because I uh, had the privilege of being called a sociopath by one of my favorite podcasters, Mark Oppenheimer. In the spirit of uh, fair-mindedness and certainly uh, not being a sociopath, Mark, don't worry, I, I didn't take you seriously on that. I want to celebrate Hey Shvat today by doing a little sampling, all right? There's one of my favorites right here, the, the Drake's Yodels and the Butterscotch Crimpet. I've never had this before and I wanted to share with the J. Crew my live first Crimpet, Crimpet tasting. I don't think I make a Shehechianu on this, uh, first time, but I will make a Mizono. So I'm gonna start with, uh, with the yodel. The yodel, I don't eat a lot of these things, I'm not a kid, but it smells good. It smells chocolatey right out, right out the gate, all right? Got my coffee here. 
So, you know, you want to eat one of these things with coffee. You got to cut it a little bit, the uh, sweetness of the stuff with a, the bitterness of the coffee. All right. Baruch Hatar, my name is Anat. That's great. That's great. Look, you got your devil's food wrapped with your frosting wrapped in chocolate. Mm. Good proportion. Listen, I, I, I don't know how this tasty cake is going to be, but I, I think that the yodel is pretty unimpeachable as a, as a snack cake. All right, now I'm going to do the, uh, the tasty cake butterscotch crimp it. Let's see. I like the, the shape of it. If you notice, it's got this it's kind of like uh, these ridges so that they don't stick together because you get you get three in a pack. All right, now let's try this one. Sponge cake with butter, scotch icing. All right, Mark, this is for you. L'chaim. Mm. Mm. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it up. That's a it's a good little pastry there. It's a it's not a yodel, but it is delicious. So, in the words of uh, of our rabbis. Both, both these and these are the words of the living God. Happy Heshvat, everybody. Reb Aaron Roller, you are clearly our official snack cake correspondent. And then finally, just so you think that we're not all about ourselves and stroking our egos, a little deflation of our bubble. Stephanie, you want to read this review we got on iTunes? Yeah, we got a great one-star review. Um, the title is Narcissistic Blather with an occasional, and then it trails off because I can't actually see it. It's such a long, oh, I think maybe an F-bomb. There's F-dash, whatever. So this is from someone who actually uses their name, which I won't read. Um, here's the review. I am always happy to see Jewish content about contemporary culture instead of YouTube bar mitzvah lessons. So I had high hopes for this podcast, but Blech. It's like being trapped at a terrible dinner party because your ride home wants to stay through dessert. The hosts constantly make inane self-referential commentary, pretending that bong smoke remarks are deep philosophy. Freshman dorm, anyone? Occasionally letting a curse word drop in a desperate attempt to be cool. Ugh. So, so, so bad. The topics are often pretty good. If only there was a completely different slate of hosts to say something nominally memorable or worthwhile. Thank you for the feedback. Um, we're, we're about to announce our three new hosts of Unorthodox. <laughs> <laughs> well, dear reviewer, first of all, nice usage of the word nominally. You are a literate uh, one-star reviewer. We're so impressed with you, by the way. You're so smart. So smart. You should totally have a podcast. Here's my question. Do we ever make bong smoke remarks? <laughs> I have no memory of us. No, I think that like that's the idea is that we are like creating that environment. I mean, I see, I see. I haven't seen a bong in like ten years. Who was that person who would write into us several times? Wrote into us about how he was quitting the podcast, like how he hated us. He was never going to listen again. Then a few months later, he'd write back and say, "I still hate this. This is the most horrible thing ever." I think one star reviewer that you're still listening to us. I think you're going to hear me say this. And here's what I want to say: I want to invite you on the show to give us a critique. I want you to invite us on the show to tell us how we can improve. If you hear this, reach out to us. You can email me, moppenheimer at tabletmag.com, my personal account. And, uh, you know, let's get something going because we're not we're not afraid of your feedback. We revel in your feedback. This also might be a good time to tell other people that if they like us, they too can review us on iTunes. Yes, we haven't done that in a while. Why don't you go? We need something, someone to counter, a little counterbalance to the one-star review. Once the bong smoke clears, review us on iTunes. <coughs> to me, it's a certain kind of sign of the times. The reviewer online should be able to go out there and, and express this kind of opinion without taking any kind of creative effort to say something more than just like an off-putting comment. I think what Liel means is 
rate us on iTunes. <laughs> I still want to talk to her or him. What I mean is go to hell, but rank us on iTunes first. <laughs> like, subscribe, leave a comment. <laughs> rate us on iTunes, but also call us. Give us your feedback, 914-570-4869. Write to us. We may use your letter on the air. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Mazel tops. Stephanie Butnick, do you have a mazel tov? My mazel tov goes out to my beloved grandparents, Cecile and Al Rothhouse. They got their first vaccine shots this weekend after a lot of like being on hold, refreshing broken websites. My parents were involved. It was like a family effort to get them registered and they got their shots. It was amazing. They sat in their car the whole time. Someone just like gave them the shots out of both windows. So excited for them and hope to see them soon. <laughs> My mazel tov this week is to all the people in the J Crew who are adding to their families through birth, adoption, marriage, whatever, but particularly one-time Jew of the Week, Elisheva Coleman, who had her baby. And thanks to super listener and one-time Gentile of the Week, Shay Katiri, for updating us on that. That's a, a friendship shidduch that we made at our live show in Pittsburgh. Long story short. And also to the Herrings, who wrote to us for advice on naming their baby back in the day when the baby was in utero. They gave birth this week. There's a bris. And we wish them all good things with their new child. And we need to know the name. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? I sure do. To one-time Jew of the Week and someone who we love dearly, Mime Bialik, who will now serve, we learned, as Jeopardy guest host, which is such a perfect gig. That's our show for the week. Before we say farewell, though, I want to say that the Jewish name of the year bracket is up and running and vibrant. Continue to send us names on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or to our emails to unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Some of the early frontrunners, I just want to give you some of the early frontrunners, include... Hillel Horovitz. By the way, I saw that on one of those like real estate posters in New York City in a store, empty storefront. That Right. That was your contribution, Stephanie. I was like, I like that. Harry Sachs. Say it a few times and you'll get the dirty pun. Zach Isakow. Crew Fredman. Sorry, this is one of yours. You're related to Crew Fredman. That I am. The High Wasp low Jew mashup there is splendid. At our Temple Emmanuel Striker Center live show, one of the people in the audience was Carol Shackmaster. That's my, my own early favorite. Shackmaster. I just, <laughs> it's a superhero. It's a store. It's like the Shake Shack. It's the person who, who makes the burgers at Shake Shack. But it's also like a chess master in the old country, we, re we realized in the course of that event. Or a shochet master, a master slaughterer, butcher. We don't know. We don't know. It's deep in the mists of time, but Shack Master. And then somebody suggested, somebody wrote in with maybe the Facebook with Trudy Hope Schlamowitz. The first name is Trudy Hope. The last name, Schlamowitz. I actually think that might be the winner so far, but it's, it's early in the day yet. In any event, I'm not putting Shackmaster and Shlomowitz up against each other in an early bracket because they're both really high seeds. They won't meet each other till the quarterfinals at the earliest. And then we got this um, letter from our friend Ted Fons, who said, great show this week. I always enjoy Stefan Fatsis. Here's my entry for Jewish Name of the Year, borrowed from a young man at our shul, Ari Goldhammer. It's just a badass Jew name. Let me count the ways. Number one, Ari, the lion, fierce, brave, and vaguely badass Israeli. Number two, Goldhammer, encrusted with Ashkenazi depth, but also calls back to the Maccabean victories of our ancient warriors fighting to restore Torah learning against heathen Greek oppressors. Number three, say it out loud, Ari Goldhammer. It flows like a haiku, strong and wise at the same time. As a Jew with a very un-Jewish name, I can only aspire to the badass strength of Ari Goldhammer. 
yours, Ted Fons. Ted, indeed, you have a really schwach Jewish name. Ted is weak, Fons is weak, but you are a wise, wise, wise man. No, he's the Fons. Hey. Arthur Fonzarelli. Ooh. Played by a big Jew. One of the biggest. Oh, that's good work. He's the Fons. Henry Winkler. I think Ted Fons is too young to know that it's cool to be the Fons. It's always cool. Go on YouTube, find the Fons. I imagine that someone has told Ted Fons about his nomenclatural relation to his ancestor. He will write to us and let us know, as you should all write to us with more entries for the Jewish name of the year. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts and Jewish name of the year entries to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. You can email producer Josh Cross, for example, to suggest doing a live show or advertising with us at jcross, cross with a K at tabletmag.com. For swag, bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. On Instagram, it's at unorthodoxpodcast. On Twitter, at unorthodox underscore pod. Join the Facebook group. The show is produced by Josh and Sarah and Robert. Our artwork's by Esther. Theme music by Golem. Mailbox theme by Steve. Our Eruv engineer is Sarah Jane Ficken. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Yitzchak Mizrahi of Beth Israel Abraham and Voliner in Overland Park, Kansas. And we come to you again from our scattered deep bunkers in the Q state, the bunkers of Tablet Studio. Shalom, friends. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My goal is to beat them at their own game. Beat the best team in the world. This Shiva Asar Batamuz. Hear the true story of how one team from the rough and tumble world of Teaneck, New Jersey girls floor hockey became the center of the sports universe just for one shining moment. Reigning champions, the Hafter Hawks, were indomitable until one team was brave enough to try to take them down, the Mayanote Rapids. Led by star Sara Fredman, they came out to beat the Hawks and captured our hearts and the world. Come on, ladies. Hustle, 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 hustle. Guard your woman. Along the way, they overcome their rivals, the Frisch Cougars, even though they had a few famous stars on their squad. It's time for a flash flood, baby. Come let the Rapids sweep you away when you see Mayanote Miracle. This Shiva Asar Batamus on streaming platforms near you.